Well, let's, we're gonna get online and pray together. And uh, so this is gonna be a challenging passage of scripture, but hopefully you will find it applicable to your relationships. Um, so let's, uh, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter five. And those of you that are online, you'll see the verses that we're going through on the, the screen up here. It should be up here for you. And if you guys wanna open your own passage of scripture and your own translation, you're gonna, we'll be, we're gonna look at uh, 421 through 5.5 to, to start with. 421, if you remember, um, the Bible was not originally separated into chapters or verses. So the Apostle Paul just writes a letter to the church at Corinth. And so it all flows together. And a lot of times where we leave off, it, it interrupts the, the, the flow of thought. So what I've done is I've included uh, verse 21 of chapter four with uh, verse one and following of chapter five, and you'll see why, okay? It's a connecting verse, but let's pray together first. You always wanna pray before you get into the word. Father, I thank you uh, so much for the, uh, the prayers the praises that were offered just a moment ago and uh, for all that you're doing in the lives of people. And we need to recognize when you're at work rather than uh, if anyone's like me complaining so much because things are not going the way that we want them to go. And we need to be appreciative of the people who are in our lives, even if we are missing others that uh, are not currently in our lives. I pray that you'll keep us safe and you'll keep us strong. You'll help us to maintain our health you help us to be wise when we make choices about our health. And uh, I pray that you'll open your word for us tonight and we'll be receptive to what you have to say, even though it's controversial and it is not in keeping with what our culture is uh, teaching right now. And I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Alrighty, so I think what I'm gonna do to introduce this so that we get the whole flow of thought, I'm gonna start with verse 21 of chapter four and, uh, and I'm just gonna read straight through uh, chapter five, and then we'll go back and we'll see how far we get through chapter five. The Apostle Paul says, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated even among the pagans. And the word there is ethnos, it means the nations, uh, but it's referring to those that are not uh, believers. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has done such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with you, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Verse six, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning that the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. 
But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother, uh, as in a brother in Christ, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not the, it is, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. All right, so you can see why this is a very difficult passage to teach in our day. Um, it's interesting because at the same time as we are told to accept certain, uh, for instance, this addresses a sexual practice, sexual practices, and not to be tolerant of them, not even to be accepting of them, but to celebrate them. Um, there was a time when we in this country were very strong believers in tolerance and that caused us to tolerate things that we did not agree with until those things have become acceptable. And now the people who are uh, in those particular lifestyles are intolerant of anybody who does not find their practice acceptable. So it's fascinating that, you know, this is only used until the people who were once preaching tolerance got in a position uh, to damn everybody else who doesn't agree with them. But this is not just one side or the other. This is humans, period, right? Uh, Christians were persecuted and martyred for the first three centuries uh, that Christianity was in existence. And then Constantine legalized Christianity. Then it became the official religion of the empire. And, you know, it wasn't too long before Christians were persecuting those that didn't agree with them. So you see, it's it's a, it's a problem with human beings. So we're gonna walk a, a tight rope here because we want to be willing to follow the scripture and to say that we're not going to be tolerant of explicit immoral behavior among those who claim to be Christians. But that doesn't mean that we're going to reject them out of hand nor does it mean that we're going to act sanctimonious, holier than thou, uh, that we're going to be unwilling to be involved with people who are in the world that are not Christians who are taking these positions. Well, let's get to the, uh, to the passage at hand here. Um, the introduction that I originally put in my notes for this is, uh, the relevancy of the topic addressed in 1 Corinthians 5 should be evident to anyone who participates in a church. There is a reason that unchurched people many times make the accusation that the church is full of hypocrites because the church is full of hypocrites, but so is the world. That's just the way people are. They point the finger at you and three are pointing back at them, right? Uh, we have a tendency to see the flaws in other people and overlook the flaws in ourselves. Um, the Bible presents a remedy for this problem. Identify with the death burial and resurrection of Christ as seen in biblical baptism. So when I have something in my life that I'm dealing with, I know it's wrong, I know it's sin, I've got a couple of choices. I've got more than that, but there are two main choices. I either accept that as part of myself and go on either in it, fully accepting it, or I go on struggling against it, but I've accepted that it is part of me. 
or I identify as the scripture teaches, as the apostle Paul t teaches with the death, burial and resurrection of Christ. And I divorce myself from that addiction, that habit, that temperament, that sin, right? I can see that I am, you know, I did a, a, the message on temptation, right? I can see that this temptation is coming against me. But remember, the temptation is not the sin. So whatever it is, I may be tempted to act out, but that doesn't mean that it's sin as long as I am fighting against it. But I'm going to be successful in fighting against it if I have placed myself, this is me, this is Christ, in Christ. And if I identify with him in his death and burial and resurrection, then I see, as the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, that I am a new creation in Christ. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. So that's confusing initially because, uh, you know, you can assume, well, because I'm new in Christ, I should be having different feelings and yet I'm having the same feelings. And that's really not what happens or what continues to happen for many of us. There are those who struggle with certain temptations and sins and addictions and so forth. What's new is my relationship to that. It's not me any longer. So I can say, yes, you know, the, the devil can point his finger at me. Uh, there can be that accusation even from my own conscience. Look at you, you're a hypocrite, this is wrong. And I can say, well, you're right, that's tempting me, but I'm not going to receive that as my identity. My identity is my life is hidden with Christ in God. There's a new me and it is not within me, it's with Christ. That's a completely different perspective and that will lift you out of the mud hole over and over and over. The problem is we identify with the sin and in our society, our culture today, we simply go on in it and say, it's not wrong. The Bible's wrong. That's a dangerous way to live. Okay. Um, so uh, the apostle Paul is admonishing the Corinthians to listen to him. You can either obey God's commands or you can go through discipline. And we're going to see that more in just a moment, but it's, you know, there's three ladies here who have all had kids, right? And uh, you were just talking about someone in your life that acts like a kid, right? Uh, not too long ago. And so, you know, we're doing rockin' summer all week long and we've got kids all running around and so forth. And you give them a command and it's intended to benefit them. What happens when they go on and they continue to disobey the command? Well, then you have to do something to correct them. There's a difference between punishment and discipline. Punishment is I'm paying you back for what you did wrong. Discipline is I am correcting you. I am doing something that is intended to get you to change your behavior, to turn around and walk a different direction. And you know, when they're little, you can physically pick them up and move them, right? <laughs> that's, you know, I'm standing at the door today and I don't want these kids to go out of the, the room that they're in. And here comes this little guy. He's like two years old. He's like, no, no, boom, you know, and, uh, well, you know, we get older in Christ and the Lord doesn't do that. Sometimes he's telling you not to go in that other room because there's something in there that is going to be dangerous to you. 
but you keep pushing at the door, so you have to go into the other room and deal with what's dangerous to you, right? So that's what the Apostle Paul says. You want me uh, to come to you with a rod or with the spirit of love and gentleness? Then he gets into, so up until this point, the first four chapters have been about this division, which by the way, I don't know who drew this, but somebody who's been in this Bible study drew this picture. I don't know if you guys can see it right here, but it's got these little groups. I'm a Paul, I'm a Peter, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Christ. This was sitting over there on my table. So that's kind of cool. But that's, this is what we've been talking about. We've been talking about these divisions in the church. So instead of these groups all being one group, which they were in Christ, they've divided into these other discrete groups. And as I've said before, that's applicable both in the church and outside the church today. There's so many people that are divided from each other in so many ways. But now he addresses an explicit um, problem related to church discipline. Uh, he says, it is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife, right? Um, okay, so this is difficult. A man has his father's wife. It does not say that the woman was his own mother, thank God. So this is likely his stepmother. Here's the situation. This man is having sex with his stepmom, probably living with her or in you know, another case, she's living with him. So perhaps she left his father and moved in with him. We don't know what the, the situation is. What we do know is that the church was okay with it. It wasn't a secret relationship, right? This was an open relationship. This was similar to the situation that uh, John the Baptist addressed with Herod that got him arrested uh, when he said, you can't have your brother's wife. It's not lawful for you. And so, you know, this made this woman angry and Herod arrested John and eventually uh, beheaded John, but it's the same thing. Um, so there was this tolerance in the Corinthian church that came from their understanding that they were no longer under the law. Well, we're not under the law, but that doesn't mean that sexual immorality, immorality is acceptable. That doesn't mean that evil is now good. That doesn't mean that you just chart your own course. It means that you're not under the law of sin and death you're not liable to the punishment that is under the law for these things. Uh, we're not under the Mosaic law, which also had ritual components that were intended to separate the people of Israel out from the nations. But God designed sex. He designed each human being. He designed the relationship to be between a husband and wife and that was intended to be for life. And when that design is violated, you are disobeying the law, but it is not a law that is intended to punish you uh, if you disobey it. It's a law as in a law of physics, right? It's the same type of thing. And so there are all sorts of sexual activities that are permissible and pursued today that are violations of God's laws of nature. And there are even those that are uh, ostensibly experts in you know, biology and so forth that are justifying these things. And without getting into detail, 
it can be demonstrated, I think, very easily that these practices are not healthy. Now, we can't see some of the relational aspects as clearly as we can see the physiological aspects, but if you look at a longer term, and if they were willing to be honest about these things, these relationships are often fraught with all sorts of problems, right? So um, why didn't the church do anything to correct him? I read one commentary that said that, well, this could have been a wealthy person and they were just proud of their tolerance, uh, you know, and having this person in their church, or they were proud of their tolerance of something that was forbidden in Roman and Jewish law. They're taking their liberty to an extreme, an extreme that is certainly not acceptable to God. Now listen to this uh, little passage from the, the Biblical Theology Study Bible. It says, Roman incest laws strictly prohib prohibited intimate relationships between relatives to the third degree and between a stepson and stepmother and between a stepdaughter and stepfather. The punishment was losing property, being exiled to an island and losing social status. Now here's the interesting thing. Beginning about the time where the Apostle Paul is writing and on into uh, the latter part of the, this first century, um, there were laws on the books in Rome that prohibited these practices, uh, but we know by looking at what was going on in Rome that people weren't obeying those laws, right? So um, Jewish law, of course, the Mosaic law also forbade this. Leviticus 18.8 and Deuteronomy 22.30 both indicate very clearly that there should not be a sexual relationship between a stepchild and their stepparent. So what are they doing? Perhaps, as I said, they're taking their freedom for, uh, to the extreme. And they're, they're being, and this is, we see this today. So, you know, if a church is gonna to grow phenomenally large, there's becoming this willingness to simply overlook virtually anything, right? As long as it's not causing trouble in the, in the congregation. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes to the Galatian church. This is Galatians 5.13. He says, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, that is the sinful nature, but through love serve one another. So let's think about love in this context. We might say, well, what if he loved her? What if she loved him? Love's not a feeling. It's not a feeling for someone. Love, and I've used this definition from C.S. Lewis for many, many years, it is a commitment to act in the best interest of someone else. It is not in the best interest of someone else to drag them through the muck and the mud and the mire, uh, to put yourself in that position uh, by chasing your, your feelings, right? Um, it's not in the best interest of someone else to violate God's moral law. So I'm not going to evaluate love as a feeling and say, well, you know, we're, we love one another and so we're gonna do this. I remember some years back, uh, there was some sort of an illicit, perverse thing going on with uh, a man and these two boys. And one or both of them were involved in murdering their father. And apparently, you know, while the, court, the trial was going on, there was some discussion as to whether there was a sexually perverse, illicit relationship going on. And these are underage boys. These are, 
I remember they were brothers, and one of them had to have been 11 or 12, and the other one was mid-teens, right? But they talked about how they loved this man. It's not love to murder your father, right? It's not love to get involved in a sexually illicit relationship with someone because it's destructive. Following your feelings doesn't constitute love. That's just selfishness, right? That's desire. And I think many people confuse desire with love, and it's not the same thing, right? Um, The flesh is easily deceived. It's manipulated by the world and by the devil. God didn't make the body for sex or sensuality, but as a temple to house his Holy Spirit. Listen to what it says later in this very letter. In fact, in the next chapter. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Again, he's talking to Christians, to believers who have said Jesus is Lord. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. That's the blood of Christ. So glorify God in your body. So the Apostle Paul's response to the sin of this man is swift and direct. One, he identifies it as wrong. This is where we go wrong. We refuse to identify sin as sin. The very first thing that the devil did with Eve in the garden, did God really say? Trying to get her to call evil good and good evil. That's what the devil does, right? Number two, to uh, clearly indicate that acceptance of of the man in this state constitutes acceptance of the sin. That's what we need to understand. When you, and again, this is someone who's in the church, not in the world. When you have a relationship with someone and you're trying to befriend them and talk to them and help them understand the gospel and you're being loving to them, but you're still communicating the truth with them, that's one thing. But when someone has said, Jesus is Lord, I believe in Jesus, but I'm gonna go on living this life, then you have to have a different sort of approach, okay? Um, So when someone is, let's just, you know, imagine that this was going on in our church. So here's someone who is now sexually involved with his stepmother, and they're a member of our church. What do we do about it? We just sit back, shrug our shoulders and say, here's the problem. Acceptance of that person as if nothing is going wrong is tacit approval for what they're doing. That's how they're gonna read it. They're gonna read it as approval of what they're doing because they say, well, I'm one of you. Now, if someone's visiting this church and I'm preaching the gospel to them and I'm willing to share with them or whatever, there's gonna be an immediate wall that goes up when they wanna be baptized or when they wanna join the church. I'm gonna let them know you're gonna have to make a change here because when you say Jesus is Lord, it means that you're putting him in charge and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance is part of what we need to do if we're gonna have faith in Jesus, right? So. Uh, number one, you identified, he, the Apostle Paul identified this as sin. Number two, he indicated that acceptance of the, the man in this state constitutes acceptance of, of the sin he's committing, and that is wrong. And number three, far, far from being proud of their tolerance, they should be in mourning. Why don't we weep over sin anymore? We don't, we just shrug our shoulders and just say, well, hmm, that's the way it is. But if someone is a believer and they find themselves caught up in sin, some form of immorality. And again, we all make mistakes and uh, you know there, there are times when we stumble and fall, but that's not what this is. This isn't a stumble. 
This is a commitment, right? This is a commitment to sin. It's a commitment to this relationship and persevering in that sin. That's different than someone who has a stumble and comes to, you know, other Christian sisters and brothers in Christ and says, you know, I need you to pray for me and, you know, I need accountability and so forth. That's a different story than someone who is, you know, doing what we see in many churches today. They're, they're pursuing, actively pursuing relationships that are forbidden in scripture. And the church is accepting of that, celebrating that, saying that, that, that God made that. No, no friends, I'm sticking to the word. I wanna love people and honestly, I'm just not interested in people's sexual practices and lives. That's not what I'm interested in at all. But sadly, what they're doing in a private situation has bearing on what goes on in the rest of their life as well. So uh, we have to be careful. And then number four, Paul is swift. He says this guy must be removed. He, he needs to be excommunicated. So this may seem appropriate in your estimation, or it may seem harsh, or both. Um, church discipline is a rarity in a consumer culture. If someone is caught doing something that one church considers immoral or wrong, what do they do? They just go to another church. And you can find one that'll accept your behavior today. Or you can get lost in a mega church where nobody knows anything about you. You just go sit in the dark and listen to the music, right? And listen to the preacher tell you what you wanna hear and then go home and assume everything is okay. Uh, I think I already mentioned this, but it's still fresh in my, in my memory. There was uh, a church, this has been a decade or so ago. I, I think they've moved out that long ago, but there was a church not too long ago, at least in my lifespan, uh, that was over off of Firewheel Parkway. It was a large church. And uh, uh, a man that I, I met over at Intrinsic was telling me about the different churches he and his family had visited. Um, and he recalled visiting this church. He couldn't remember the name of it. And I'm not gonna use the name of it today because I'm not trying to disparage that community of people. But his impression was when he got in there, it was just really loud and there were lots of lights and it was like a rock concert. Well, that might be your style of, of worship, that's fine. But if that's all you do is go to a rock concert every Sunday, you don't, there's no accountability. You don't have to get involved with anybody. Nobody has to know anything about you. And I know people that would prefer being in those environments. In fact, some of them have gone here in the past and they've left. And now they're involved in these bigger churches and they're, they're cool with it. It's great, right? Um, I don't know, fortunate or unfortunate when you're in a smaller church or you're, you can be in a large church and be in a small group. And most large churches are going to try to have small groups so that they can help people to connect. I mean, I got saved in a large church, so I have nothing against that. Um, but if you're not connected to a group that will hold you accountable, then what do you do? In fact, there was somebody uh, visiting our church not too long ago that uh, left the church that they had been in because the small group that they were in were becoming increasingly accepting to immoral behavior. And this, uh, this uh, woman was and she was taken aback by that, and that was why she visited here for a while. So, well, you know, we see this, uh, this happening. The problem is, if you call people, and in the early days of this church, I had all these young people, and uh, we called ourselves City of Refuge initially, and the idea was this is where the guilty can go and be free, not where you can go and 
celebrate your sin. And young people being young people, you know, they were getting involved largely in sexual matters. And so when I called them on this, then that made them unhappy and they left. And we had accountability groups. It's great to have an accountability group until people have to actually be accountable for something that they're, they know they've done wrong. And then instead of being accountable, they just leave. And that's what I saw over and over again. And so I've come to see that you can't force someone to be accountable. They have to choose to be accountable. It's just very important that that happen. Because uh, these were younger people, and so I had a different sort of relationship with them than I would have with, uh, with adults. Um, so I was you know, very accepting, but then once they come in, then I'm trying to raise them up and help them to be, in this case, men of God. And there was just this real tendency to say, oh, well, I messed up again, and I messed up again, and I messed up again, and you know, just to go around and, and you know, have all these little sexual escapades. And so that was the main reason why we changed the name of the church from City of Refuge to Zion, because I wanted to clearly signal, we're not doing that. That's not why we called the church this. We're not justifying our sin. We're trying to help you understand that you come to Christ and you're, you're free of judgment and you're free of fear and you're free of shame and you're free of guilt. But as we just read you know, what the Apostle Paul said just a moment ago, you're called to freedom, brothers, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So what I have seen then is if you try to hold people accountable, if you try to speak to them about these things, they just shrug their shoulders, turn their back, go out the door and either leave the church and say, you know, the church is, you know, it's, it's too, it's too uh, backward when it concerns these matters. Right? We're living in a different world today than you lived in. You don't know the world I lived in. It's so funny. I, you talk to these younger folk today, it, they just assume that, you know, this is beaver cleaver when I grew up. No, no. There's a whole lot of marijuana smoking. There was a whole lot of sexual immorality. There was plenty of homosexuality too. It just wasn't open and accepted. So it just makes me laugh. Don't think that your world is so dramatically different or your urges are so dramatically different. Uh, people in every era, the, the big difference is the social acceptance of it, right? So, um, yeah, it's difficult. Now, the opposite extreme, and I've seen this in churches as well, is that the church acts by completely cutting someone off without hope of restoration. Now, it, the Apostle Paul seems very harsh, but he's, he puts hope out here. He says, you're gonna turn this guy over to Satan so he can go out in the world and his flesh will be destroyed, but his spirit will be saved. So Paul still believes the guy's saved. He just believes he's gonna have to go out and he's gonna have to endure the consequences of his sin. We'll talk about that in a minute. But there are churches that uh, will completely cut someone off or shun them or maybe allow them to attend, but uh, to really treat them as someone that is uh, not accepted, that is lower, uh, whatever term you want to use, and uh, essentially shaming them in a sanctimonious way. Well, that's not healthy discipline because it offers no opportunity for restoration. And again, I, you know, I've got folks in here that have raised kids you need to show them a way out. You can't just say, here's your punishment. 
show them a way out or you're not correcting them. Nobody changes if you just, this, this is why the law didn't work, okay? The law just said, this is wrong, and if you do the wrong, then this is what you deserve and you're punished. There was no opportunity for salvation there. Now, there was hope for forgiveness through the sacrificial system, which was obviously pointing to Jesus, but the law didn't help anyone to overcome sin. It pointed out what sin is and what sin was, right? This is why the Apostle Paul says in Romans that it is uh, the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Condemnation doesn't lead to repentance. Shame does not lead to repentance. Shame can lead to regret and worldly sorrow, but guess what? That's why Judas hung himself. He did not repent. Jesus loved Peter, even though Peter publicly denied him three times. And Jesus did what? He restored Peter and still called him Peter, which is the name Jesus gave to him, which means rock, although denying Jesus three times doesn't show that you're much of a rock, right? But see, Jesus sees something in you that you don't see. Because he sees the you that he has created you to be. That's why we need to stop looking inside to figure out who we are. The answer is not in you. The answer is in Christ. And of course, then Christ comes into you, but I'm not looking at me, I'm looking at Jesus. Now, this is very, very um, uh, refreshing because when you find yourself stumbling in certain areas again and again, or you, you know, your temper flares up and you've fallen back into some pattern that you thought you had overcome, and you think, well, that's just who I am. I'm never gonna overcome this. But see, as soon as you confess, you're forgiven, and the Lord says, no, look, look up here. This is who you are. That's who you'll be without me, but this is who you are. So this man goes out and he's basically relegated to his own flesh. Uh, that's the problem. So uh, we don't want to have the kind of church that has this, uh, this judgmental attitude. An attitude of love seeks restoration. And in fact, Paul teaches elsewhere that believers in Christ are to speak the truth in love with the intent of becoming like Jesus. Jesus teaches that the paradigm for correcting a fellow believer is to be found in medicine, not the law court, right? So I really, there's a, there's a word that I think is really, really appropriate to define what Jesus was referring to when he said, judge not that you be not judged. I like this word. Do you know this word, censorious? Censorious. It means fault finding, right? Think about the word censorious, it starts with a C and the word to censor, right? What is censorship? It means that you're judging that that particular piece of entertainment or literature or whatever is not acceptable. You've found fault with it. When Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged, he's talking about fault finding. You're looking for faults in people. He's not saying, don't be wise and root out evil. But, but in this very passage that is often quoted, Jesus gives another paradigm, which is for medicine. He says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, 
he shifts from the law court to medicine. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? This would be like a speck of sawdust, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? Now, Jesus could have just stopped there and it's, you know, uh, it's uh, hyperbole. And we all go, oh, I get it. But he went on to say, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. He doesn't stop there either. He says, first, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He doesn't say, don't care for your brother and see the speck in his eye. You don't turn the other way and say, I don't see a speck in your eye. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, don't be censorious. Be compassionate, be caring, be willing to help this person. Show him that you had a much greater problem that you worked on. So you can offer help with this small problem that he has, right? So do not judge doesn't mean we refuse to hold fellow believers in Christ's standard of right to Christ's standard of right and wrong. It means we do not put ourselves above another as their judge. We're not critics. We're not fault finders. Again, that's what that word censorious means. Christ is the only righteous judge. We simply teach his truth and inform people of the consequences of their actions. So I'm not the judge, but as James says, the half-brother of Jesus, the judge is standing at the door. What kind of loving person would I be if I didn't say, but judgment day is coming? And this is not the way God has called us, uh, not, not what he's called us to, not the way he's created us to be. So um, we want to seek to bring healing to someone's life. In the case that we're referring to here, where church discipline is necessary, the community must seek to heal the broken member. Permanent amputation is not the intent, but painful resetting of a member out of joint, right? So uh, many of you may know, uh, when I was younger and uh, I was on the way to getting my black belt in karate, we used to spar all the time, and I used to spar my sensei all the time. And uh, I think that uh, I hit him a couple of times, and uh, I didn't pull my punches enough, and I cracked a couple of his ribs. So he suspended me from sparring for two weeks. He said, you're, you're suspended, right? He said, I had to roll out of bed for a month, right? <coughs> now I was, I was just enthusiastic, right? I was just, you know, out there to you know, get busy. And uh, so I don't know if it was kind of payback for that or whatever, but you know, I'm still a lower belt. He's still better than me. Just because you get a couple of shots in doesn't mean you're better. And so I don't know, this is several months later, I'm sparring him. And when you spar, you need to stay on your toes, okay? Contrary to what you would see in my karate club where we're standing there and we're doing all this, that's just training. When you're sparring, you're on your toes and you're moving around. If you're flat-footed, bad things can happen, right? So I'm sparring, and I'm just tired. When you, you, you know, when you get tired, you're in a round, and it lasts three minutes, for example, right? Three to five-minute round. It, it just takes a lot out of you. And so I was flat-footed, and I don't know what he did, but I got my foot, my left foot, caught between his feet. And he did some kind of a throw, right? Well, I was flat-footed and my foot stayed between his two feet. So here's my foot of my left leg, but
but the rest of my body went this way. And then my foot came over. When I reached down, because I knew something was wrong, I was in this, this weird position on the ground. And when I reached down to touch my leg, I reached down to where my knee is and my kneecap was not there. It was just, your kneecap, this is, your, your knee is a butt joint. They just butt together, right? And you have a kneecap over the top and a bunch of ligaments, tendons around there. My kneecap fully dislocated. So I reached around and it was like, it was like a, the top of a, of a drum, right? That's the skin. And I reached around to the side and my kneecap was over here on the side of my leg. Full lateral dislocation of the patella. I didn't move. They call an ambulance. They slide a, uh, you know, a, I guess it's a buckboard under me, right? And I'm, I'm in this position the whole time. I ride to the hospital and the ambulance in this, you know, position. By the way, x-ray technicians are mean. <laughs> They're just mean. They need to take their picture and they don't care. I haven't moved my leg at all. I've got a full lateral dislocation of the patella. And this lady is like, okay, I need you to lift that up. No, lift it up. Lift it. She wants me to lift my leg up. I had to lift my whole leg up with a lateral dislocation of the patella, screaming in pain so she can take a picture. X-ray techs are mean, or at least that one was. So when they finally got me back into the room after the x-rays and all of this other stuff, um, the uh, doctor came in and said, okay, we're going to re relocate your, your kneecap. And so I, they gave me a shot of Demerol. Yeah, then it didn't matter. So they, these two orderlies came in and uh, I'm just like, yeah, nice. It's a, they said, okay, we're going to relocate your kneecap now. I said, okay. Now, the interesting thing is Demerol is a muscle relaxer. It is not a pain reliever. So I did feel the pain, but it just didn't matter. I was like, ow, ow. Why do I tell you this long story? Because I'm illustrating this idea. We didn't amputate my leg because I dislocated my patella, right? I had to go through this process and they relocated it. And that's what happens. That's what church discipline should be, okay? And if we can find a way to lessen the pain, sure. But it still needs to happen. We can't just say, well, that's just, you know, that's okay. That's normal. And I'm laying on the ground with my kneecap on the side. Well, eventually you'll learn to live with that. And there's plenty of people with no kneecap that, you know, and you, but if I have one and we can put, anyway, I'm, I'm probably pressing the illustration too, too much. For though absent in body and I am present in spirit and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Now, so once again, Paul is not being censorious. He's not being fault finding. The fault is obvious. He's saying we need to do something about this. And later he clearly says we don't judge people outside the church. But we have to look at what our brothers and sisters are doing and tell them if it's wrong, it's wrong, right? So he says he's, he's present in spirit. I've already pronounced judgment on the one that's done such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with you with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So 
the idea of delivering this guy to Satan sounds extreme, but bear in mind, he's really already out there. He's already doing the enemy's bidding. They just need to stop supplying comfort, right, uh, to his actions. Um, by committing himself to this evil course of action, the man's already following the devil. All Paul is saying is just stop protecting him from the full consequences of, your, of his perverse actions. Put him out, in the, out of the church so that he'll have to endure the evil consequences he's brought on himself. Or as the proverb has it, this is Proverbs 14, 14, the backslider in heart will have his fill of his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied with his. Your foolishness will correct you. Now, if someone will not be corrected and they go on in their foolishness, they're just illustrating that they were never saved to begin with, right? Jeremiah warns the people of Israel, your own wickedness will correct you and your backslidings will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God and the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord of hosts. So. A church should be a refuge. That's why we called this church City of Refuge for the first couple of years it was in existence, but not a den of thieves. Jeremiah warned the Israelites that they were making the temple precisely that. Listen to what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods? that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered only to go on doing these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. And so God took their temple away. He took their nation away. You cannot go in sin, go on in sin without consequences. In Jesus' day, the same thing was happening. Um, and you know this story, when the religious merchants were using the temple as a means to exploit people financially. That was the so-called money changers in the temple, right? So people would come and, you know, you're, you're, you're the lamb that you need to offer is not good enough. You need to buy one of ours. Oh, wait, you can't use your secular money to buy it. You need to use our money to buy it. So there's an exchange rate here and we're going to take part of that, right? So there was a lot of uh, extortion and, well, not extortion, but exploitation and uh, going on here. Um, this is Matthew 21, 12 through 13. As Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. So, um, yeah, this is once again, people using a religious context to sin. Now, we're addressing a sexual sin here, but this is greed. This is taking advantage of people. And unfortunately, there are certain sins that are looked down upon within uh, a church and others that are perfectly acceptable, right? So this is an example of something that was looked on as acceptable and Jesus called sin. So um, I can look at the history of our church and in the past, uh, there are those who came here because it was a refuge and then they abused uh, this church by continuing in their immorality and sin. So I'll use an example from so long ago that this, I won't use the, any name, but uh, this person uh, was a part of our church in the first year or so. And uh, 
was really, really enthusiastic that we call our church City of Refuge and uh, promptly moved in with his girlfriend. And he'd been involved with me in our youth ministry and so forth for a while. So I just let him know that's not acceptable. Now, at that point, I didn't say you can't come here, but he was somebody who was uh, periodically, he played the guitar fairly well and sung. This is not anybody you all know, by the way. Um, uh, I don't think anybody in this room has ever met this person. And uh, he, you know, would, would, would do that for us. And I said, yeah, you can't, you can't do that. I, I can't let you do that while you're openly involved here. Well, you know, immediately left because there was this idea, well, this is City of Refuge, we can just do what we wanna do. And that's really not the case, right? Um, so we love everyone, but we judge no one. We don't allow sickness, however, to spread throughout our community by failing to address it. If someone is asked or feels the need to leave, we're open for them to return when they're ready to change their minds and turn from bad lifestyle choices. So we had a youth minister here several years back who had uh, been involved in uh, homosexuality when he was younger, came to Christ, really sought to, to live a committed Christian life and not pursue homosexuality. But I think uh, he encountered some people that basically convinced him that the two pursuits, Christ and homosexual involvement, were not mutually exclusive, but uh, could be uh, inclusive. And so as the result, uh, this is a, and by the way, this is a wonderful young man, and I don't have anything disparaging to say about his personality or how he treated other people or anything like that. It was really a servant and a wonderful young man. He really was. But I had to say, um, you know, you can't go on in leadership. You can't go on serving in this church and openly pursue that because he's no longer saying, hey, this is a temptation and I'm dealing with it. He's saying, no, I'm just going to, in fact, Sadly, I had to find this out on Facebook. He didn't come and tell me, he posted it on Facebook. You know, I've been doing this for years, but now I feel that I must do this. I'm not going to leave being a Christian, but I'm going to also pursue this. So I openly posted the two pursuits are mutually exclusive. At which point all of his old friends that didn't have anything to do with him suddenly jumped all over me. How dare you, how dare you, how dare you? I'm not being hostile or hateful. Um, and we didn't even kick him out of the church or anything like that. I just said, you can't be involved in leadership and you still come here. But eventually he stopped coming because it just doesn't work, right? If I keep preaching the truth, I can love people and they can sit here in these seats, but I'm not gonna make you comfortable, right? In fact, probably nobody is completely comfortable when you preach the Word of God. As I said, when we started this, this is an uncomfortable passage. The Bible is an uncomfortable book. It offers comfort at times, but only if you choose to give your life to Jesus and repent and do what you're supposed to do, right? So, um, so let's, let's think about this, this man being you know, put out in the world with Satan so that his flesh is burned up. Well, earlier in this very letter, the Apostle Paul spoke of a person's works being tested by fire, which will either purify or burn them up. Listen to what he said. This is from chapter three, so a couple months ago. He said, the Apostle Paul said, each one's work will become manifest, that will, means it will become obvious, for the day will disclose it. That means judgment day because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. 
If the work that anyone has built on the foundation, that is the foundation of Christ, survives, then he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So basically, some people's experience at the judgment bar is not gonna be pleasant, even if they are saved. So there are no tears in heaven. I've said this for many years. There are no tears in heaven, but I think there are gonna be plenty of tears shed at the judgment bar of Christ. When we look back at our lives and we evaluate what we should have done, what we could have done, and what we didn't do, right? Judgment for Christians is gonna be about receiving reward for what you've done for the Lord in this life. Jesus has taken all of our sin upon him. Now, it's very difficult because in Hebrews, it does also clearly say, if we go on in sin willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire that will consume the adversaries. So this fire of judgment, this, uh, this illustration, I don't think we're gonna literally go through a literal fire, right? This is a purifying fire. What's gonna make it through that fire? Well, in the example that I just quoted in 1 Corinthians chapter three, the Apostle Paul talks about building with wood, hay, and stubble versus building with silver, gold, and precious stones. Well, precious stones are not affected by the fire. They may get a little, you know, tarnished or whatever, you polish that off and it's, you put a diamond in the fire and it doesn't do anything to it, not a thing. You can't, you and I can't create a fire that's hot enough to do anything to a diamond. Gold, it's gonna liquefy and it's gonna bubble and what's gonna happen? All the impurities are gonna boil off. Same thing with silver. See, that's what we are when we're in Christ. But if people have built their lives with wood, hay, and stubble, and that's what I suspect we're seeing going on in many churches today that have changed their sexual ethics to be in keeping with the culture, then basically everything they've built, I don't care how big their church is, it's gonna go up in the fire. But if they're preaching Jesus, there's still a foundation. And the people who have at least kept their faith in Jesus, they're still gonna be saved but they don't have anything to offer to the Lord. They've just basically been rebellious their whole life. And I've encountered plenty of folks that are like that, right? I just don't wanna be like that. And I don't want you to be like that, right? Um, so, um, so all those that, uh, although this, verse that I just referred to refers to those that are in ministry. The passage currently under examination makes reference to the same event, Judgment Day. We get into heaven because of what Jesus did for us by his death on the cross. We must receive God's grace gift of eternal life by trusting Christ as our Lord, the leader of our life, and by confessing that we are in need of his salvation. In the areas where we fail to follow him, we'll be, we will fail to be rewarded on Judgment Day when commendation is given to the saints and condemnation to the unbelieving. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said in the last chapter. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And then a little uh, in the next uh, book, the next Corinthian letter, 2 Corinthians 5.10 assures us, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 
So there are those who will be saved, but like as by fire. So it's like someone running out of a burning building, right? Your hair's on fire, your clothes on fire, you know, get on the ground, roll around, but you're still saved, you're still alive. Um, this is why we need to have that in view as we live our life and not just live the way the world lives. The Apostle Paul, later in this very letter, as a matter of fact, uh, uses uh, the Olympics, an athletic competition, as an example. He said, and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things, disciplined in all things. Now they do it to obtain a, to obtain a perishable crown. So that's what they gave them. They gave them a wreath, a little crown, not a ruling crown, right? But a victor's crown that, you know, you've seen statues of that, right? The laurel wreath. They do it to receive a, a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. In 1 Timothy 4, 8, the apostle writes, finally, there is laid up for me a, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. Again, that's judgment day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. <clears throat> and then James, uh, the half-brother of Jesus, the pastor of the Jerusalem church, writes, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised those who love him. And then in 1 Peter 5, 4, Peter writes, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. That's what we're pursuing. We shouldn't wanna just squeak into heaven. We should be seeking the reward. And then, you know, when you get to Revelation, it talks about uh, the saints casting their crowns before the feet of Christ, right? And so the idea here is uh, that we are looking forward to someone that is something that is far greater and far beyond, uh, you know, any shame that we may endure down here by not allowing the culture to drive us into its particular values, all right? Okay, so we'll uh, finish this chapter, at least that is my plan, next week, all right? God bless you guys that joined us. Appreciate everybody.